Ankylosing spondylitis, from the Greek word ankylos, meaning crooked, curved, or rounded, spondylos, meaning vertebra, and itis, meaning inflammation, has been around for thousands of years. Its characteristic pattern of inflammation and progressive fusion of the back, also known as bamboo spine, has been identified as early as the 2nd century AD. And some experts think that even the mummy of Ramses II shows signs of the disease as well. The definition of the condition as we know it was developed in the 1800s, allowing us to identify and treat it before the irreversible deformities occur. Today, our patient has ankylosing spondylitis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled About Damned Spine, an Approach to Ankylosing Spondylitis. All right, time for a minute physiology. Ankylosing spondylitis is part of a broader family of spondyloarthropathies and is a condition of inflammation of the attachment points between the capsule, tendon, or ligament, and bone, also known as entheses or enthesitis. This inflammation can lead to new bone formation, eventually leading to fusion, or ankylosis. Common sites of enthesitis and enthesopathy include the SI joints, intervertebral and spinous process ligaments, the Achilles, and plantar attachments of the calcaneus, and the capsules and intracapsular ligaments of the large synovial joints. The exact causes of ankylosing spondylitis are unknown, but they are identified contributing factors. Mediators of the ongoing inflammation include cyclooxygenases, tumor necrosis factor or TNF-alpha, and interleukins or IL-17 and 23. All of these are targets for therapy. The affected enthesial sites are areas that are regularly under significant mechanical load and susceptible to microinjury. Microinjuries can then activate resident immune cells, which release chemoattractants for circulating pro-inflammatory cells. This inflammatory response involves TNF-alpha and IL-17, and it may be dysregulated in ankylosing spondylitis. There is also a known genetic component most strongly associated with the HLA-B27 allele, which is present in approximately 90% of patients with ankylosing spondylitis. It is thought that the condition develops with some exposure or infection in genetically susceptible individuals. There are several hypotheses about how HLA-B27 affects development of ankylosing spondylitis, including molecular mimicry, differential presentation of arthritogenic peptides, homodimer activation of NK cells, and enfolded proteins causing a stress response. Other contributing causes may include changes in the gut microbiome and defects in the gut mucosal barriers. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Your first step in any patient encounter will be to assess whether your patient is stable or not. What is their GCS? Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? Ankylosing spondylitis is most commonly diagnosed in the outpatient setting, though you may see it on the ward and see people admitted with complications from the disease or therapy. However, if a patient is unstable and presenting with a complaint of back pain, they warrant a thorough investigation for traumatic or infectious causes. 
Once you're sure your patient is stable, you can then move forward with your assessment. A good clinical history is important in making a diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. You will generate your pretest probability based on clinical history and then use physical exam maneuvers and diagnostics to raise or lower the likelihood of diagnosis. The onset of ankylosing spondylitis is typically between age 20 to 30 and usually before the age of 45. However, many patients can be diagnosed late. It was once thought to be more common in men, but it is equal between sexes. On history, the patient will present with inflammatory back pain. This can include nighttime pain, pain that is worse in the morning or after rest, pain or stiffness that lasts for more than 30 minutes when getting up, and pain that improves with activity and exercise, but not with rest. As the disease progresses, spinal stiffness and loss of flexibility develops. There may also be unilateral, bilateral, or alternating buttocks pain, neck pain, or peripheral joint or enthesial pain, particularly at the foot or heel. You also want to ask about comorbidities that can commonly be associated with ankylosing spondylitis, including anterior uveitis, psoriasis, and inflammatory bowel disease. Similarly, ask about a family history of ankylosing spondylitis or any of the aforementioned comorbidities. On physical exam, you may notice a characteristic stooped posture, increased flexion of the neck, increased thoracic kyphosis, and loss of lumbar lordosis. You want to do a thorough skin exam to look for psoriasis or any other rashes and a good joint exam, particularly focused on the back, examining for loss of normal movement and inflammation of the SI joints. Note, however, that the examination can be normal in earlier presentations. SI joints can be examined by palpation and by stressing them using the Faber maneuver. The Faber maneuver involves the patient lying supine and having the hip flexed, abducted, and externally rotated with the ankle resting on the opposite thigh just above the knee. The examiner then provides additional stress by pushing down on the bent knee and stabilizing at the opposite asis. A positive test will result in pain at the SI joint. This test can also provoke anterior groin pain, which is suggestive of intraarticular hip disease or iliopsoas strain. Lumbar flexion can be assessed using the Schover test. This is done by marking a spot in line with the dimples of venous and another 10 centimeters above while the patient is standing upright. The patient then flexes forward all the way and you measure the distance between the two skin marks. The distance should increase by at least 5 cm, though this is fairly nonspecific. Spinal deformities, for instance, kyphosis, can be measured via the occiput-to-wall distance. Have the patient stand with their heels and back against the wall. In this position, the occiput should touch the wall, meaning that the occiput-to-wall distance is zero. Finally, chest expansion tests movement of the ribs at the spine at the costovertebral joints. Do so by measuring the expansion between expiration and deep inspiration at the level of the xiphosternum. Normal is approximately 5 centimeters of expansion, and less than 2.5 centimeters is abnormal. Now, much of the information you will require to make the diagnosis will be from your history and physical. However, there are some pertinent investigations to perform as well. On labs, you will be looking for signs of inflammation, including an elevated CRP and ESR. You may also see signs of inflammation on the CBC, including anemia of chronic disease or reactive thrombocytosis. Keep in mind, however, that the ESR and CRP can be normal in many patients. If you are suspicious for ankylosing spondylitis, you can also test for HLA-B27. 
Note that this is not a good general screening test as 8% of the population are positive, but only 5% of individuals with the HLA-B27 allele develop ankylosing spondylitis. However, 90% of individuals with ankylosing spondylitis will have a positive HLA-B27 allele. Next, you will need to get x-rays of the sacroiliac joints, looking for evidence of structural changes, including erosions, ankylosis, changes in joint width, or sclerosis. These findings are graded using the modified New York criteria. MRIs are also being increasingly utilized to assess bony inflammation or osteitis before x-ray changes develop, or even afterwards to assess disease activity. Radiographic sacroiliitis is either bilateral grade 2 to 4 sacroiliitis, or unilateral grade 3 to 4 sacroiliitis on x-ray, or evidence of active inflammation in MRI that is highly suggestive of sacroiliitis from spondyloarthritis. The ASAS, or Assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society criteria, combine clinical, laboratory, and imaging findings to make a diagnosis. The criteria were validated in patients who have had back pain for at least three months and an onset of symptoms before the age of 45. A patient can be classified as having ankylosing spondylitis with sacroiliitis on imaging and at least one spondyloarthritis feature or HLA-B27 positivity with at least two other spondyloarthritis features. Spondyloarthritis features are inflammatory back pain, arthritis, heel anthocytis, uveitis, dactylitis, psoriasis, inflammatory bowel disease, good response to NSAIDs, family history of spondyloarthritis, and elevated CRP. Now, remember that there is always a differential to consider. Here, this includes mechanical back pain, vertebral compression fractures, fibromyalgia, diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, and SI joint infection. The history, including duration, morning stiffness, and response to exercise, associated clinical features, and imaging will help you differentiate these conditions from ankylosing spondylitis. Moving on to treatment. Pharmacologic therapies progress for ankylosing spondylitis in a stepwise manner and are tailored on an individual basis under the care of a rheumatologist. Recalling the common sites of inflammation outlined in the beginning of this episode, cyclooxygenases, TNF-alpha, and IL-17 and 23 are common molecular targets for therapy. First-line therapy are NSAIDs targeting the COX pathway. NSAIDs can provide symptomatic benefit and some data suggests can also slow radiographic progression. Common examples of NSAIDs include naproxen, celecoxib, and ibuprofen. If there is inadequate response to at least two different NSAIDs, then the next step in treatment is biologic therapy targeting the TNF-alpha and IL pathways. Unlike other autoimmune arthritis, there is no role for methotrexate or systemic steroids. Local steroid injections can provide benefit, but this is typically not a mainstay of treatment. The list of approved, targeted therapies for AS is constantly expanding. Currently, approved classes target TNF-alpha, IL-17, or Janus kinase. If you are seeing a patient with ankylosing spondylitis on the wards, there are a few things you should consider. First, consider comorbidities. As previously mentioned, ankylosing spondylitis is associated with anterior uveitis, psoriasis, and inflammatory bowel disease, as well as an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. In addition, joints with inflammation and bony changes are more susceptible to fracture and infection, including discitis. Second, if the patient is on biologic therapy, they may be more susceptible to certain types of infection, 
and may warrant a more thorough workup and broader empiric therapy. Finally, evaluate for complications. Depending on the severity and extent of the disease, there may be spinal fusion and permanent deformities. This is important to consider for procedures involving the back. Most notably, fixed forward flexion of the neck can make for a very challenging airway. If there are signs or reasons that the patient may require intubation and evidence of cervical spine deformity, involve experts including anesthesia early and urgently if required. Similarly, fusion and bony changes in the lumbar spine can make procedures such as lumbar puncture and epidural catheter insertion challenging. These patients may require evaluation by anesthesia or interventional radiology for an image-guided procedure. Time for a Medicine Minute. Did you know there's specific Choosing Wisely Canada guidelines for rheumatology? Among the recommendations is to not order HLA B27 testing unless you are suspecting spondyloarthritis based on the specific signs and symptoms that we've discussed in this podcast. They similarly recommend against ANA testing unless there are signs or symptoms of lupus or another connective tissue disorder. Your history and physical exam are truly the most important screening tests. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled About Damn Spine, an Approach to Ankylosing Spondylitis. This episode was written by Dr. Emma Reeser, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Raj Carmona, rheumatologist, and Dr. Stephen Gillick, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karianopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshma Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic and resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and we hope to see you again soon.